Welcome back to the Next Frontier podcast. This will probably come out on either the Where Stuff Comes From podcast, or we might have a new name for that in the next few weeks. Uh, up for debate within our team. Today, I have an extraordinary guest that I'm really excited to dive into what I believe is one of the most fundamental issues, the most fundamental industries to where our stuff comes from, to our ability to function independently as individuals, as communities, as a nation, uh, and then function as a as a entire global economy. Uh, it's also fundamental to our ability to innovate and drive forward technology, increase human flourishing, and move forward on technological frontiers. Mike Howard founded Howard Energy Partners. He is a, a boon for the energy industry. He's probably the most knowledgeable person I know about how fossil fuels go from dead dinosaurs or maybe even alive dinosaurs that the fossil fuel industry somehow buries in the ground to access more oil. I don't know if they have that technology yet or not. Uh, to go from dead dinosaurs to the plastics that you know and love, to the oil that you put in your car, uh, and to the, the energy and the infrastructure that keeps the lights on. Mike Howard, thank you so much for joining me today. I'll let you do a little bit of a self-introduction and pose the question that I like to pose to all of my guests and ask you, ask you, who is Mike Howard? What is Howard Energy Partners in 2021? What are you most excited about um, heading into this kind of new decade? 2020, I know that that was the start of the new decade, but you know, in all of our minds, we kind of are still in December 2019. So as we head into this new decade and this new era of 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 regime changes, uh, this new era of of the status quo of society. Who is Mike Howard? What is Howard Energy Partners, and what are you excited about? Uh, thanks, Max, for for having me here. You know, we started Howard Energy Partners uh, ten years ago. This is our tenth anniversary, and like you said last year, uh, uh, the pandemic started up, and we we didn't know what we were we, we, what what was going to happen. Right, uh, we all got sent home. Uh, we sent our employees home. We worked from home. Uh, this year, we've come back with a renewed sense of hope, right? 2021 feels like um, it's getting better uh, from, from a uh, just a commerce, a business standpoint. It feels like the unemployment rates are coming down. It feels like they, our employees are moving around a little bit more. We're back in the office. Uh, and I'll tell you what, 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 what we are uh, focused on in this current political environment and really geo geopolitical environment, the, um, the energy conversation is a conversation that we need to elevate to the front of people's minds. It's kind of in the back of people's minds right now, but we need to elevate it to the front of people's minds because energy, you know, let's say right now, uh, for instance, you know, fossil fuels, uh, I'll just call them fossil fuels and we can explain that in a minute, but it's the, we're, we're the business that powers every other business. In other words, if you don't have energy, you, you don't have the life that you have today. Um, another way to think about it uh, would, would be, um, you know, 84% of the, of the energy consumed on the planet comes from the ground. Uh, that's a hard thing to get people's head around. A lot of people just think about electricity, but uh, as we can get into it today, we can talk a lot more about that. And where Howard Energy is right now is we're finding our place there. We, we operate in four different states in the U.S. We also operate in Mexico. We own pipelines. Uh, we own um, natural gas processing plants. Uh, we own um, refining uh, type uh, uh, service plants. Um, we have port facilities. 
so we move energy around a lot for different uses. Um, so anywhere from domestically to internationally. And so uh, we're, we're finding our place in this environment where ESG is a big conversation. The environment has always been a big conversation, but it's definitely been elevated uh, to not just land and water, but also now to air uh, and, and figuring out where our place is not only now, but the next 50 years. Uh, we spend time thinking about uh, what our legacy is going to be and, and how our company can contribute. Our, our purpose of our company is to deliver positive energy. And I just love that saying because it could, you know, we think that fossil fuels are positive. We think other energy forms are positive. There, there's really no negative energy form because energy provides life, you know. And so they think the more uh, we can provide, uh, the better people's lives are. And so, we, you know, we, we want to deliver that positive energy. And so we're not stuck into any one mindset. Um, right now, we make our money from that one mindset, but we are open to, uh, to exploring, you know, how to deliver more of that in more places that don't have it. I have a, a few follow-ons there. First, I want to, to make a comment about ESG, uh, environmental, environmental uh, was it social, social justice and, and social governance. And, governance. Mm -hmm. and I've found that, for myself, as someone who loves fossil fuels, I think that it has created more human flourishing than any other any other resource that we've harnessed in uh, in human history. Um, I consider myself a tremendous environmentalist. Um, maybe not. I'm not definitely not a climate activist, but I love the environment. I love to surf. I love clean water. I love clean air. I love love clean everything. Um, and it strikes me that the people I meet within the energy industry, in the fossil fuel industry also share that and are some of the greatest stewards of, of the environment. Um, can you talk about that for a minute and how, how, you know, this misconception that, that folks might have probably not the listeners to this podcast, people in this podcast, our listeners, our audience tends to um, be industrialists and folks who, who, you know, use polymers every day and need fossil fuels to run their businesses. They, they kind of get it. Um, can you, can you just talk about how, fossil fuels lead to human flourishing and how the work that you do really enables human flourishing and also enables humans to make better use, cleaner use, more effective use of the environment? Sure. I'll, I'll, I'll let you know about my personal journey and how I got there. So I started doing research five years or so ago, thinking I needed to start investing in alternative forms of energy. I wanted to take my company to the newest, latest, and greatest. I, I don't want to be resting on my laurels. I want to go and find what the Next, uh, I'm a capitalist, you know, first, and, and I wanted to figure out how to invest my, my money. I was feeling a little bad about what we were being told, especially uh, not the past administration, but the administration before that, that we, it feels like you're under attack when you're in the energy business, especially the fossil fuel extraction business. You feel under attack that you're doing something inherently bad. And the people I know in this industry are not bad people. They're very good people with good families. And, and they're, they're just working to provide for their family. And it's interesting that even I, as a CEO that had been in the energy business for 20 years, was feeling a little bad about this. So I started doing research. And to get to the place that I am today has been quite the evolution, where now I'm a, I'm a proponent in talk like you talk, which is that we love fossil fuels, that without fossil fuels, without extracting what what we can from the earth, it, it really goes back to my chemical engineering days when I learned the first law of thermodynamics. Energy is neither created nor destroyed. You, you, don't, you don't get something for nothing. There's no free lunch. So you have to 
have energy to create the life that we have. There's no such thing as a low energy, high income country. There's no such thing as a low energy, high income person. There's, there's no such thing on the planet as that. And so once I started getting my head around that, I started getting talking points and conviction around really what's going on. And, and there's quite a few books and resources out there uh, that, that I've you know, got my hands on, um, you know, anywhere from, uh, I know you, know, you share um, the uh, Moral Case for Fossil Fuels book, but also, you know, Robert Bryce's work, uh, Matt Ridley's work um, on how innovation works. Um, even, uh, you know, a, a guy that's relatively liberal, like uh, um, Stephen um, uh, Pinker out of Harvard, you know, uh, on his work that shows Bachmoff's Mill, one of my favorites. It shows where society comes from and, and what we lived like 10,000 years ago when we invented farming. And then think about how you started, how would you plow ground to plant a seed? Well, you dig a hole with your hands and plant a seed. Well, how can you harness a horse to do that? How can you harness a cow to do that? Oh, in the 1700s, how could you start boiling water to make steam to run a piston to start having an engine do that for you? And just think about feeding yourself every day and the evolution of people from 10,000 years ago and, and on what we do today when we hurl ourselves down the road at 70 miles an hour in a vehicle and air conditioned and don't think much of it. Or when we turn a light switch on and we just don't think much of it. I, um, I, I'm from a small place in South Texas and, I, and, and it's a relatively hot, arid kind of Gulf Plain down there. And, and when my ancestors got there in the 1830s, reading how they conducted their daily lives, they spent most of their time feeding themselves and protecting themselves and keeping themselves alive. That's what they spent their days doing education and that sort of thing was kind of a secondary. Their education was around how to keep themselves alive. Uh, when you look at the number of farmers in the U.S. in 1900, there were still 65% of us farmed, you know. Well, today, 1% of us farm. We don't spend our time wondering how we're going to feed ourselves. This is the first generation we are. We are the first generation where other people cook our food. We don't worry about our food. Uh, you know, this is the only generation where there's not widespread famine. There's 7.8 billion people on the planet. We're not worried about distributing food. In fact, if anything, we, we've got a little bit of an overfood problem. And, we, and we're using less land for that. What I have found, I'm a landowner. I own a ranch in South Texas that I purchased, that I clear and improve and bring wildlife back and try to improve it and put it back to where nature started it. What I've learned is that wealth creates, and wealth is a bad word because people go, oh, well, you're wealthy, you know. How about prosperity saves the environment? We've increased national forest in the U.S. We've increased national forest worldwide. When you look at people, yes, there's deforestation going on in certain areas of, of the world. But as a world, we're probably preserving more forest than we're killing now because guess what? We're saving the environment. And that's what I've learned through my research and then looking around and, and changing my worldview of that we're a parasite on the planet versus we're a we're a we're a species that helps makes the planet better and more livable. And so it was quite a journey I went through from, say, 2015 uh, or so back then to where I am today. And I'm in the energy business and I'm very not I'm a chemical engineer by trade. I'm very knowledgeable about atoms and how we how, how things get organized and that sort of thing uh, from a 
from a thermodynamic standpoint. And even I didn't appreciate the gift that's been given to us and how we've been able to, to, um, to really harness energy to do what we do today. Uh, it, it's, it's really fascinating to me. So let I'm, you, you answered like three of my questions with that response. Sorry about that. No, it's okay. It's great. No, it's wonderful. I wanted to get into the the, the laws of thermodynamics um, and kind of taking a first first principles physics approach to understanding where energy comes from and what energy is. I wanted to ask you what books and 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 authors you recommend at the start of the conversation because I was going to rec- suggest that folks listening to this, if they wanted to to have a different lens for this conversation that they pause here and maybe go pick up one of those books, maybe Alex, Alex Epstein's moral case for fossil fuel, and then, then come back and, and listen to the rest of this conversation. So thank you for diving into both of those. Can we come back to the first law of thermodynamics and putting your engineering hat on? Can you break down for us what energy is? Where does it come from? What is it? And then we can get in after you've given that background to throughout human history how we've taken that first law of thermodynamics, whether or not the humans who were doing it, the apes who were doing it, knew it or not, um, were applying it and actually using it and interacting with nature via that first law. Yeah. Uh, so, and gosh, you know, I, I I was an engineer at one time, and now I play an executive. You know, that used to, my engineers would be very uh, uh, concerned if I start talking too deep. You know, uh, uh, but I'll, I'll tell you what the way I think about it is it energy is the thing that provides us power and power is what we really want, right? We really want the the energy helps us do our work, anything that helps us do work. So where does energy come from? It comes from, from what the earth gives us. And you can, and most people uh, these days hear a lot about solar and wind, uh, which are very, um, I think, think of it in terms of energy density, meaning how much stuff does it take to provide how much power? And so when I think about, um, let's dig in the ground and find oil or coal or natural gas or uranium, each one of those individually can be modified and transformed into power. And depending on, on what you're attempting to do, whether you're attempting to drive a machine, heat a home, cook uh, produce a fire to cook your food, whatever you're attempting to do, each one of those has unique characteristics to get to the solution that you're looking for. Uh, but nothing is created. There's no such thing as a perpetual machine. There's, uh, you know, any of the early physics that you'll study um, uh, will tell you this. And I'll tell you that I mentioned a while ago, the, 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 a guy that puts it in uh, readable form because this is kind of hard stuff to understand. I think Vaclav Smil, uh, uh, he's a professor up in Canada. Uh, his book, uh, History of Energy and Civilization, I think ties energy and civilization together very well. And he puts it sometimes in textbook form where he talks about the number of calories that you would eat in a day, consume, because you can get energy, you convert food. The, the sun grows a plant through photosynthesis. So photosynthesis, you eat the plant, that energy is transferred into you and you put it into energy and dig in a hole, putting a seed and then growing the plant again. That, that would be a simple way that, that, that you can understand energy. And then 
if you want to get energy to do more work for you, you have to get it from somewhere. We've been getting it from the earth, you know, uh, for um, that, that's what we do. We either going to burn wood in the early days. And if you were to get thrown on a island right now, the first thing you need is energy and food and you need fire to cook your food. You're going to cut a tree down. You're going to chop some limbs. You're going to use some, you're going to use some um, uh, underbrush. You're going to make yourself a fire. You need shelter. You're going to be putting up some sort of shelter around you. It's probably going to be wood uh, or some kind of organic material. You're going to, you're going to need to uh, boil your water. Um, you're going to make a fire. You're going to create energy. You're going to take that wood and convert it into heat. Uh, and that heat produces uh, uh, um, energy for you and it transfers to your body, you know, to keep you warm. Um, so the basis of what we need to do is extract energy from the earth to give us uh, the, the, the life that we need. And like I said, it's a, it's a long conversation on each one of the energy densities because uh, of, of each of those products, uh, whether it be natural gas, oil, coal, uh, or, or uranium. Uh, if you were to go in order of power density, uranium is by far uh, the, the most dense. Um, you, can, you can power most of your life, uh, the, the history of your life, um, in a very small amount of uranium. Uh, same way with oil, you get more, uh, less dense with natural gas. Uh, coal is up there with oil as well, as far as densities. And uh, when you get to solar and wind, it's the least dense. It takes a lot of surface area and a lot of solar and a lot of wind to produce a little bit of power. Um, and so uh, it, it is um, um, interesting to, to, to think about uh, if you were to get dropped on an island, like I mentioned, how you would, how you would eat. And, and, and you start thinking through that, multiply it times 7.6 billion people. How do we get to where we are today? Uh, so I, I find that fascinating to, to, to think through. Well, it's also, you mentioned planting a seed. It's you're eating food. You're going to replant the seed. You plant, you replant the seed. And then you have a little bit of leftover energy that you can go use to, to think about a new concept, right? You eat some food, you go chop down a tree to, to cook the food, to cook, cook the, cook the antelope that you just killed in the Congo. More on that later. Um, to cook the antelope that you just killed in the Congo and now you have a little bit of energy that you can that you have left over to go make a new type of bow and arrow to go hunt more efficiently. But it seems like once you've unlocked an order of magnitude, 10 order of magnitudes, a thousand order of magnitudes, I guess not a thousand order of magnitudes, three or four order of magnitudes, a thousand times um, more energy density in the form of coal or in the form of natural gas or in the form of oil or in the form of uranium. Now you can dig the same hole, sort of. I mean, it's a little bit of a bigger hole that you've, you know, used some of that leftover energy from the food you grew after digging the hole. Um, and now digging a hole, you can get a thousand times more extra energy that you can use to go build a new new machine gun to go do whatever chaos you're going to cause with a machine gun. Probably a bad example. Uh, boat, so you can go sail across. Uh, you can go sail across the Atlantic Ocean more efficiently. Sail to the sail across the Pacific Ocean, whatever it might be. Um, code a program, you know, you can, you have, yeah. you have all sorts of uh, free time to do things. With, you know? uh, right. So, so it seems like the, the density of the energy you find in your, in your theoretical philosophical whole directly correlates to the, our ability to create more human flourishing, more technology and more innovation. Um, so 
I wanted to just frame that. I think that that's a perfect place for us to move move the conversation onwards. And if listeners want to go learn more about that, reading up more on the first law of thermodynamics, reading up on the authors that you suggested for how to wrap their heads around these concepts. But the important piece being energy comes from somewhere uh, and energy is this finite thing that you can never get rid of. It's either in oil, if you burn it from, from oil, now it's in a steam, now form of steam. And if you burn it from steam, it cooks your food. Now it's in the food that you're going to go and consume. Um, things like this. And thermodynamics is a very important concept. Uh, but on that note, getting diving more specifically into oil and natural gas, which is your wheelhouse. Um, first, could you just define for us um, on as micro, as macro a level as you'd like, what is oil and what is natural gas? Um, and then we can get into how they're different. And then I have a really fun question about um, the different players in that ecosystem. So it's hard for us to get our head around is when the formation of the earth was going on and you had a very violent early beginning and you were growing organic material and then you'd have land uh, um, on top of each other and then you'd have oceans, you know, rising and, and, and swelling, you know, you know, hundreds uh, of feet each way. You had ice ages, you, you know, it's hard for us to get our mind around one million years it's almost impossible to get your head around a billion years. We're alive, if, if you're very lucky, you know, for a hundred years. You know, so when you look at what 100 is versus what one million is versus what one one billion is, and think about the Earth where, where it's coming from. Well, along the way, those organic materials—you said dinosaurs and 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 anything other organic—that that was that was formed that would that would die and form over this organic material, and then it was it was compressed over time deep into the Earth. In the Earth's formation over millions of years, it created these pockets of of uh, carbon sources uh, that were um, some of it oil, uh, which is the heavier hydrocarbon. A hydrocarbon, you know, it's just hydrogen and carbon uh, bonded together. The the long chain hydrocarbons, the heavy hydrocarbons, uh, create oil. Then, as you move up the 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 through rocks and and dense soil, that sort of thing you get natural gas that sits on top of the oil a lot of times. Sometimes natural gas is below because there's a pocket, you know, but, but a lot of times um, it, it's, it's, it's above it. So natural gas is a hydrocarbon also, but it's much less dense, of course. It, it's a, in, in a methane is the name of it. It's, it's a, it's a uh, CH4, it's a uh, odorless um, uh, molecule. Uh, oil being something you can hold and feel, it's much more uh, tangible. Oil, uh, and, and to get to it, you have to drill. Uh, starting in the you know 1800s, um, uh, 1860 in the U.S. around that time frame, the, the the Drake well up in Pennsylvania, you know, they, there was oil coming out of the ground, seeping on the oil, and a lot of times on the ocean floor or uh, places in the world, oil seeps onto the ground. That's where people found oil. They started drilling a little bit for it just by hand, like they did for water. And they started finding oil and they started figuring out ways to light it on fire uh, that produced power and started figuring out, oh, this could be used in place of coal. How is this better than coal? Because coal was already around by 1800. So uh, of using it for a power source. So, you know, it, it is, it is uh, and, and by the way, I, I forgot, I said oil, natural gas, Coal is the same thing. There's, I think, a um, um, in some estimates, there, there's there's more coal than any other um, uh, fossil fuel out there. Um, but 
but uh, it's, it's formed in the same way through very dense, high pressure uh, organic compounds coming together over millions of years under, under the earth's surface. So in the modern day ecosystem, so all of these fossil fuels are long chains of carbons or short chains of carbons, depending on the thickness, the density, if it's used for, for gas for your stove, or if it's used for oil for your car, or if it's used to make plastics with um, different lengths of hard hydrocarbons. That's what I'm, I'm gathering from what you're, how you're describing it. That's, that's exactly right. So if you have an oil, it's very, it's a very long chain. If you're looking at a molecule of oil, it's very mm-hmm. long and big and it has multiple carbons on it. Uh, a methane has one carbon. And so when you light oil, it produces a lot more carbon dioxide than if you light uh, a methane molecule. There's just one carbon molecule that combines with oxygen to make CO2 versus a long chain hydrocarbon. Uh, and depending on what you're doing, so we take long chain hydrocarbons into a refinery. A refinery breaks all those things up and makes like a light gasoline or a, or a diesel or a jet fuel uh, to, to, to power our transportation system. Uh, the lighter you go is where you make your plastics, uh, your uh, propane for your barbecue pit. Um, so anything uh, that that you can think of that you use around your home, this plastic comes from the lighter chain hydrocarbons, uh, the natural gas. And so refineries and petrochemical plants are taking that from we, a company like Howard Energy, uh, once it gets to the surface, we take it, we pipeline it. Uh, transform it, clean it up, make it a commodity that's able to be uh, marketed. And we get it to a place where they actually make something of it. We don't actually make the the, uh, the downstream products of, of all the ones I mentioned uh, between plastics to pharmaceuticals to everything that we use in life for transportation. Uh, but we deliver those products to them uh, to, so they can do their job next in the in the value chain. So can you break down that value chain or as I, I've written about before, the stuff chain, just because it's more millennial friendly? Um, yeah, so, it, so it, it's, it's a very complicated science to drill into the earth thousands of feet. Uh, most of the wells that, that, that in our areas nowadays, they drill down over, say, let's say they drill down 10,000 feet. There's 5,280 feet per mile. So they're going down two miles into the earth then they're turn their, their drill and go maybe another mile or two out. And then they, they use a, a, a technique nowadays called fracturing where they actually send high pressure water into the well and sand and, and, they, and they break the rock down there and oil and natural gas flows into that drill pipe and comes to the surface. What it does when it gets to the surface though, it's useless. There, you can't use it. You have to clean it up because it comes with impurities. It has dirt, sand, water in it. If you try to run your car off of it, it's just a, a, a nasty mess uh, that's inside of pipes. It's not going into the atmosphere, but you have to do something to it. You have to uh, process it, clean it up, separate it, and get it where oil goes one way, the water that comes up goes another way, and the natural gas goes another way. All of them usually pipelines, all of them uh, stay within closed systems. Um, and so that's called the the upstream business, the upstream or the exploration and production business goes around the earth looking for ways or looking for pockets of these oil and natural gas deposits to to, to extract. Um, then the midstream business would take that unusable commodity and we start cleaning it up, start making it where it will be sold. Um, and a market for natural gas would be Henry Hub or NYMEX 
is, is the price you can always look up daily every few minutes what, what, what the price of something is. Natural gas has a price, but natural gas is a, um, is a, um, has a, has, it's a very pure form of methane. Oil, you see an oil price every day. Oil is a big, you always hear about oil price, you know. Oil has different prices. One that we use a lot is West Texas Intermediate, WTI. That has a price. So the, 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 the product is cleaned up. It's transported then to either natural gas goes to power plants primarily or to cities primarily or to petrochemical plants primarily um, to heat homes, run power plants to run electricity, um, and then to, to petrochemical plants to be converted into plastics and other things that, that we use. Oil goes to refineries. So our pipelines would go to refineries then uh, to uh, then refine into those products we mentioned earlier, which is jet fuel um, and all the uh, gasolines, diesels. Um, and um, what's interesting is the United States is a big exporter of those products. Uh, we export quite a bit to Mexico ourselves. Uh, and so that that is kind of, and that's called the downstream business is how in our terminology, so you have upstream is the drilling, midstream is the transportation and the downstream would be the refining and usage of it. So that's kind of the three value chains. And then the way a consumer gets it is even downstream of downstream. What we did with all that is just get it ready to be turned into something useful. The petrochemical plants or the, or the refineries that are our customers, we're, we're still in a bulk wholesale we, we haven't put it into a box to make anything out of it. We provide the, 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 the product then that somebody would buy to make their product. So if you're going to make a Tesla body, you know, on, on a Tesla, they're going to buy that plastic from somewhere. And that plastic uh, is going to be sourced from one of these petrochemical plants that got its product from the midstream business and upstream business. Uh, so, so, that finished product is using the raw materials that were started way back um, in the field somewhere with somebody in West Texas drilling a hole in the ground. You know, so it's pretty amazing to think about somebody in California or China or somewhere making a Tesla body out of the oil and gas that they could be against <laughs> out in the field um, uh, with the workers out in the field providing the raw materials to make that Tesla body. And a lot of times they don't know that the two are connected at all. Well, it, it strikes me that the, and one of the reasons I'm excited to have this conversation is that the node that you are at in the stuff chain for, for petrochemicals, for fossil fuels, um, you touch pretty much every single industry, whether it be pharmaceuticals, like you mentioned, automotive, uh, consumer electronics, agriculture. Uh, construction. Could you give us a little insight into the different industries that will eventually see your product? So what are maybe, you know, rat, if you could rattle off 10 to 15 examples of different products um, that you may, might have experience with as using the petrochemical products that are coming or the fossil fuel products that are coming from um, a Howard Energy Partners or a different midstream, upstream or downstream within that kind of you know, distribution of dead dinosaur to, to pure petrochemical. What are 10 to 15 products um, that consumers and folks listening to this might have experience with? Yes. Any, um, so uh, the mask that you wear, if you wear an N95 mask, if you uh, obviously uh, anything plastic, you use the pin that's in your hand right now, 
if you have uh, uh, my uh, uh, mother had a, a heart valve put in her heart valve uh, as a as a petrochemical product. Uh, uh, anything uh, that when you brush your teeth this morning, toothpaste is a petrochemical product. When you uh, coach, uh, wash your hair, which you have good hair, I, I don't, but you know, when you wash your hair, you know, uh, that, that has uh, uh, diethanolamine in it. You know, uh, the amine is from an ethane derivative that is um, any kind of food preservative uh, that you use, uh, that, that is used to, to distribute food to you uh, in a non-refrigerated form is all uh, uh, from this industry. Um, uh, um, it, the, the one that's most amazing to me is fertilizer. Uh, fertilizer was the biggest te technological uh, innovation, probably of this one of the biggest of this century that, that has promoted more flourishing than maybe anything. Uh, uh, fertilizer is made from natural gas that makes ammonia. Uh, there's a lot of natural gas that goes into the making of ammonia, and then ammonia is what you use to put into soil to boost the crop production of, of crops. So your 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 carbon footprint per acre is amplified drastically by fertilizer, right? Cause you're able to grow more dense food uh, out of it. Um, uh, gosh, uh, th there's, there's, uh, I, I did a speech one time. I looked up, there's over 6,000 products in your daily life that comes from, um, it, it'd be easy. I, it'd be easier to name things that don't come from hydrocarbons than it is to name things that do because everything comes from hydrocarbons in one way or another. It seems like in our daily lives. Well, you were talking about pens and I thought you were for a minute, I was like, okay, the plastic and the pen, what about a metal pen? And then I'm thinking to myself, well, duh, the ink in the pen comes from hydrocarbons. The tube Absolutely. that the ink is sitting in, even if it's metal, I'm sure there's some sort of plastic cap. Um, with the, 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 the lithium, uh, okay, what's well, lithium? Well, that, that's not hydrocarbon. Well, wait a minute. They process this lithium in the mine and to process that lithium, you use heat. Uh, to, to separate that lithium out so, so they, they can they can manufacture whatever they need to do at, at, you know and, and take different components out of that uh, it, it, but they had to get that heat from somewhere you know uh, uh, rubber uh, you know the, the rubber that's that's wrapped around the cell phone the glass that's on here that there's some process involving hydrocarbons to get it to where that is even the mining of the silica maybe uh, there's a diesel motor out there that is uh, running that machine. That machine is made out of metal, uh, made out of steel. If you're in a high rise right now listening to this, uh, we didn't have high rises uh, 200 years ago because you're, you can only have so much steel uh, compression on this. We made things out of concrete because uh, steel didn't have the tensile strength to hold these buildings. Now with heat, with intense heat and, and advanced manufacturing, we have now higher tensile steel, all because of hydrocarbons, you know? Um, so it, it's a, it's a fascinating journey to go down. I like what you talk about is like where stuff comes from, because it's like, it's endless, uh, episodes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we can do, we can do a, a conversation on each of those products. Now that we've painted the picture of how important this industry is, we've, we've kind of discussed how, how human flourishing oriented this industry is. And in my mind, I think we've done a, a good job of despair of just, you know, throwing out this notion that big oil, bad, oil, bad, fossil fuels, bad. It's so important to human flourishing. Now, can you paint a picture for us of what one of your facilities look like, one of your midstream operations looks like? What does the capital requirements to stand one of these up look like? What do the different processes within the microcosm of a midstream energy operation look like? Um, just so folks can understand how complex this really is, how much innovation really happens here. 
um, and get garner a deeper appreciation for this node in the stuff chain of where pretty much every product they consume in their lives comes from. I'll give you an example. So we did a project, uh, Mexico as a country of 128 million people, uh, primarily living, uh, you know, what we would consider poverty in the U.S., definitely below the poverty line. Uh, they're starved for energy. Let's say in the U.S., let's say we have, um, well, in Texas alone, I think we have 300,000 miles of pipelines in Texas delivering energy uh, in Texas every day, just in Texas alone. The country, and we have 26 million people living in Texas. The country of Mexico has about 25,000 miles of pipeline, you know, so it's, it's, a, it's a, a, a micro uh, level compared to what we have even in Texas. In the U.S., there's millions of miles of pipelines in Mexico is 25,000. So sorry, sorry to interrupt. I'm sorry to interrupt here. Can we maybe take a step back and just explain what a pipeline is? And, um, and I know that that it has something to do with how the stuff, this, you know, the oil stuff or the gas stuff is actually transported. Um, if you could just take one second to, to describe probably a lot more than one second. Anyway, if you could just take some time to describe what is a pipeline, because for myself, I'm having a hard time picturing what that really means. And I know it's a, constant conversation in America right now versus what the alternatives for that transportation mechanism are. And then we can loop back around. Oh, great, great question. So a, a pipeline uh, would, would uh, it's usually for natural gas, it's high pressure. Uh, it usually in diameter, some say as low as six inches in diameter to 42 inches in diameter. Uh, that's the circumference of the pipe. It's, it's made out of steel because you're under high pressure and we bury it a minimum of three feet in the ground. So when you're driving in your car, you're in, in the United States or whatever state you live in, you're literally driving across hundreds of thousands of miles of a network of products underground. Uh, and so natural gas, for instance, when it, when, whenever we refine it above ground, we stick it into a pipeline, put it back below ground, and then we, we, um, you dig it from the top of the earth, or you can use a machine to put it underneath the earth. It's called a boring machine, and you can bore underneath the earth. And literally how we delivered that in a pipeline is the safest form of transportation of energy because it's buried out of sight. Unless somebody digs into it and ruptures the pipeline, then you have a problem, but they'd be breaking the law too, because you have to, there's laws about digging that you have to follow. Uh, the alternative to that is you drive it in a truck above ground. Uh, you see these tanker trucks that are full of gasoline and jet fuel and oil uh, that are above ground. This is an 18-wheeler. They're usually round and shiny uh, that are hauling this stuff down the road at 70 miles an hour. Or you use a train, uh, and you'll see these big, long oil trains a lot of times that have a particular-looking tank on them, and they'll have, you know, um, um, a thousand barrels of tank or so, you know, on on that that are that are going up and down railroads. And so, if you're gonna haul oil somewhere, you can haul it on a truck train or a pipeline below the earth. The safest by far environmentally clean and everything else is to keep trucks off the road full of this highly uh, volatile, volatile uh, energy uh, going up and down the road and keep it uh, in a safe place underground. Uh, so that, that's what a pipeline would do. So in Mexico, um, they have very few pipelines. And so if you're gonna distribute energy efficiently and easily, you, you put pipelines in the ground. We worked on putting a, 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 the very first pipeline that crosses the Rio Grande River that's owned by the same company on both sides. So in South Texas, we laid a pipe to Monterey, Mexico. Monterey, Mexico is one of the uh, largest uh, growth areas for natural gas and population in Latin America. 
Um, and energy to get energy to them is very expensive. Another way to get energy there is through a ship. You know, you, people use ship transportation also, big oil ships or uh, liquefied natural gas ships, because uh, you can take natural gas, make it liquid, and then transport it like that also. So that project, we crossed 280 landowners uh, in Mexico to discuss with them and negotiate with them. If we could put this pipeline in their place, you pay them money. Uh, to uh, make to have to put a lease on their land so you can bury the pipeline on their land and then they get to use uh, the, the citizens of Mexico get to use this energy that you uh, deliver to them that project which you know seems um, it seems big it's 200 miles of this steel pipe and the steel that we got the pipe that we got to use that you know uh, half of it came from India half of it from Mexico itself that project was a $500 million pipeline. Uh, that is a, a large investment, uh, you know, $500 million for, for a single piece of pipe. Uh, we're about to announce a, a project this week, um, and it's kind of a, a long one to explain, but basically this plant, this refiner is taking animal fats and they're refining animal fats to, to make diesel out of it. It's called renewable diesel. We're gonna be their designated um, uh, storage facility for that. And we're going to use steel tanks to hold the diesel. Well, the animals and the fat from those animals are delivered by train to this refinery. The refinery delivers us the product, uh, diesel, by uh, a pipeline. They were putting it back onto a train in Texas to go to California to use in cars for their renewable uh, uh, diesel requirements for their, uh, for their Clean Fuels Act out there. Um, so it that's a really fascinating project of taking animal fat, making diesel and using it uh, in California. So anyway, that's a long winded way to say how innovation works, where it takes engineering and innovation and a lot of money to do these sort of projects. It's, a, it's, it's, it's hundreds of millions of dollars investments. And because when you drill a hole for oil and gas, you don't get oil and gas out of that hole naturally all its life. Most wells today, Whatever they come on, whenever a, a, a well and you have oil and gas coming up, in the second year of production, it only makes about half as much as it did the first year. The third year of production, it makes half of that. So it's naturally declining the volume coming out of that hole. There's not endless natural gas and oil under the ground. It depletes over time, no different than a coal mine or no different than a forest. You can go in and deplete the forest if you cut all the trees down you'll deplete a coal mine over time. You'll deplete oil and gas fields. So you're having to constantly innovate, constantly explore, constantly uh, look for ways to lower cost because uh, it's very expensive. Uh, but in the way we get, we have cheap energy in the United States, especially, especially Texas, is we have an abundance of supply. And so it makes our, our you know, our gasoline at the pumps, what, $2.50 now, right now, a gallon. If, you, if I go to Mexico, it's double or triple that. Because uh, they, they don't have as much supply as we do, you know. So. You touched on critical infrastructure and this extensive network of, uh, you didn't explicitly say critical infrastructure, but I'm kind of attributing critical infrastructure um, to how you're describing this extensive network of pipelines, et cetera. Um, how, how extensive and wide reaching is this, this network of, of energy pipelines within the United States? Is it everywhere? Like every, every square foot of highway you're driving over has pipeline under it? Um, is this is this really everywhere? Yeah, and so um, 
I don't want to be because I'm an engineer, so I want to speak technically correct. Of course, that, that probably every town in the United States has a pipeline in it of and, some sort. And are these pipelines reliable? Are they resilient? What happens if there's some sort in a, in a horrible, horrible future potential um, terror attack? Like, is there are they vulnerable? Is this a a critical dependency of the United States or is there resiliency and liability within this infrastructure? It's a critical dependency. What's nice about it is it's very distributed. We have a very distributed network. It'd be hard to attack any one location in the U S that we don't have, that we can reroute and back up energy to that, whether it be natural gas, oil, gasoline. Uh, But there are major arteries uh, in the U S let's say gasoline that leaves Louisiana and the Texas Gulf coast refining complex going up the East coast there's major arteries that if one of those was to get hit, it would be a major disruption uh, to the Northeast uh, on transportation, uh, on jet fuel, on gasoline uh, and, and diesel. Not unlike other countries, when Saudi Arabia got hit a couple years ago um, with a major uh, a bomb, they have one oil uh, terminal. Was this the, the drone attack? That's right. That's exactly right. And it shut down, I forgot how many uh, millions of barrels of oil at that one facility. Uh, We don't really have that here in the U.S. We don't have it concentrated like Saudi Arabia does. We're very distributed uh, in our infrastructure. A lot of it is below ground. It's very hard to get to uh, from from an attack of some sort. But in the future, it is something to uh, consider in that pipelines don't have endless life. They are metal and they're underground. We coat them with a coating to protect them from soil and, and incursion of, of, of a, a, a water to keep rust down. But over our 100-year history of pipelines, um, that some of the early infrastructure will need to be replaced. And we're constantly upgrading. We're constantly uh, working on mechanical integrity, pipeline integrity. There's federal laws that we follow uh, to do that. So the federal government has identified that uh, uh, there are certain techniques we have to use and maintenance schedules we have to use on our pipelines to keep them safe. Because like I said, nothing, including a building or nothing lasts, nothing. You can make things last forever, but nothing at a reasonable cost structure will last forever, you know? So the, thank you for describing the, the, the way that pipelines play such an important role in our society. And for anyone listening, um, I think next time you're turning on your stove or you're filling up your car or you're using whatever, uh, you know, petrochemical polymers in your water bottle, your book, your microphone, whatever it might be, just having a little bit of an added appreciation for how far that petrochemical product had to travel, the work that had to go in um, to create that, that, that good or possibly service if you're paying your gas bill or something uh, for you to actually consume and live a high standard of, of life. Um, I'd love to, to ask one last question about this, this, um, this, this oil and gas value chain. So how does a company like Howard Energy actually make its profit? Is it from, to call it, from taking a toll on each of these pipelines as oil and gas is going through it? Is it, is it something else? Are you, you know, selling, selling this commodity on the open market? What does that look like? So the most common way that a company like ours makes money is, let's say we invest that $500 million into Mexico, into that pipeline. There's a customer, it just so happens to be the country of Mexico, that has, has bought 100% of the capacity of that pipeline. And whether they, 
Think of it like a toll road. If you were to lay a toll road, every time somebody drives, they pay a toll. That's the same way that a pipeline works in a midstream company. We invest the $500 million, we own the pipe, and then that uh, customer wants to drive on it every day, and they pay us a fee to drive on it. So it is a, it's, it's a little bit like financing where, where uh, we built an apartment complex and they're living in it and they're going to pay us for 25 years to live in it. That's the same way that a pipeline works. They're, they've paid us for 25 years of transportation. Now, they only pay us every month uh, in that 25 years, but we're delivering energy every day for them. They own the commodity. They bought it from somebody that drilled it uh, to get it out of the ground over here, and they're using it on their end. We just, just get them to pay us a tolling fee to do that. That's the most common way that we make money. Um, and, and so it's not a uh, big um, wild rate of return uh, business. It's an infrastructure uh, business. Uh, that's what we do. So it takes large amounts of capital uh, to do that. So uh, the question would be like, why not just, why couldn't the country of Mexico just come up here and do that? Well, they don't have the technology and innovation uh, to do that sort of thing. Uh, plus the, the uh, engineering know-how, the, the um, uh, working with landowners, working with the federal government, working with state government, working with local governments, to get these things put in and built in a safe manner is a very uh, complicated um, uh, ordeal. It takes a lot of a lot of capital uh, to do it. So we're able to supply the capital and take a uh, take a fee out of the middle. So we don't own oil, we don't own natural gas, uh, we don't own uh, the hydrocarbon. We're, we're a transportation company. We transport it for others. Very complex supply chain uh, for oil and gas. Thank you for breaking it down. Moving into a little bit more of geopolitics, you know, we touched on Mexico and how Mexico's um, energy scarcity results in the, the cost per gallon of gasoline being three to four times higher. Um, you know, you're bringing more human flourishing to farmers as you go and you, you lease out their land to bring them energy, have, you know, give them some more, some, some additional sources of income, et cetera. I want to move into geopolitics and kind of the macro scale of what's going on in the energy world. Good transition question, I think, because you just talked about innovation and how America, American energy is extremely innovative. Who are some of the other big players in energy and how do each of the flavors of those energy uh, industries differ from each other? So, for example, you, you mentioned that America is very innovative and there's a very distributed um, energy ecosystem. Can you break that down for us? Yeah, so uh, let me understand your question. What other countries are involved in, in the... Yeah, what, what, what other countries and what... What, what is kind of the flavor of the energy ecosystems within those countries? So maybe Iran loves doing business with China yeah. and sending totalitarians oil, things yeah, like this. So, it, uh, so I just finished a new book called The uh, um, uh, New Energy Map. Uh, Daniel Jurgen uh, put it out. He's the one that wrote the prize. He makes these very big uh, books. Uh, they're very, you know, very dense to look through, but he does a very good job of stating where energy is coming from today versus where it used to come from. But Russia, let's say that there's 100 million barrels of oil getting made a day right now on the planet every single day. The U.S. makes about 11 of that. That's it. It has to come 89 million barrels. Uh, we make 11 million. 89 million comes from somewhere else. Russia is probably the uh, second largest uh, in that group. And then some combination of, of Saudi Arabia and Middle Eastern countries uh, uh, are the, are the uh, re remaining. And then there's a whole bunch of stuff. You mentioned Iran, there's Libya, there's Nigeria, 
There's a Venezuela is another large one up here uh, in, in, in South America. Um, but most of the oil and energy, uh, Canada, Mexico, you know, all has a little bit, but most of the oil uh, that comes into the market is from places that don't have the same values as the United States, clearly, um, that has the same freedoms that we have, uh, that, that produces it in such an environmentally clean way. While we're running around worried about ESG and the environment, what we've learned is as we've gotten wealthier, we have cleaner oil and gas operations. Uh, in Russia, I'm not so sure they're worried about clean oil and gas operations. As they're building Nord Stream 2 uh, across uh, uh, Europe to get um, uh, Germany more gas uh, from Russia, uh, those are major projects uh, can can you explain on. that one a little bit more? Because I think that that's an important where stuff comes from geopolitical intersection, um, if, you, if you are able to. Yeah, so I'll, I'll give what my high level is. So they're, they're basically laying a pipeline from uh, a place in Russia uh, all the way to Germany. And they, or they already laid the first one. But what's uh, dangerous about it is it you know, helps Russia geopolitically have uh, control of where the energy comes from in, in Germany. So we've established the importance of energy. Well, what's also important is if you want to put some pressure on the person you're delivering energy to, you start closing the valve. And a valve is something that you would, that you would close like on your uh, shower head to stop water coming. You can just close your energy valve. And if you want Germany to be on your side on something, you would just close the valve. So the last two administrations in the U.S. have really fought that. But what's interesting about innovation is other countries like Russia, like Germany, like China, um, uh, like India are being much more thoughtful and innovative. They're, they are laying major infrastructure projects like that. In that book, The New, uh, the New Energy Map, uh, they talk about an LNG facility, a liquefied natural gas facility going in one of the coldest, harshest places in Russia because it's closer to whatever their market is. And they're able to get that market LNG. Instead of getting their LNG from the US, they can get it from Russia. And so if you're able to provide energy to people, you're also able to provide um, political pressure. And so there is a new energy map being created in the world. The US has benefited from the last 10 years. We used to import back in the 2000s, we imported 60% of our energy into the US. Today, we're exporting energy. We've created energy independence in the last 10 years. We're actually, when we talk about um, a world peace, whenever that major oil um, uh, facility got bombed by that drone in Saudi Arabia, uh, probably by Iran, um, it cut 2 to 5% of the world's oil off the map that night. The U.S., we had plenty of supply. We didn't worry about it. If this was in the 1990s when I was growing up, we would have gone to war, immediately gone to war, because we need that oil in our lives to, to, to make the lives that we have. And so literally what we've done from an innovation standpoint in the U.S. Uh, by becoming energy independent, it really causes world peace. We're not out trying to attack others to get their oil fields. Uh, but I tell you, China is. China has done a very good job of collecting minerals throughout the world. Um, uh, same with Russia. Uh, they, they're doing a very good job of extracting their minerals uh, um, to, to to sell to people. So you, when you have when you look at the size of those countries too, um, it, it's it's pretty interesting to think about uh, the alliances being built between Iran, China, Russia, and others, um, and it's all based on energy. Well, this this past month, um, 
and I mentioned Iran before and made a joke about them supplying other totalitarian regimes, but it wasn't really a joke. It was pretty serious. Um, serious. I saw this past month that they signed, that Iran and China signed a $400 billion strategic partnership. Um, They're calling it a strategic partnership for 25 years in which the Chinese and the Iranians will form a joint central bank um, that will have the Chinese currency as its reserve currency. Um, number one. And then number two, there was a significant amount of oil exports and oil infrastructure, oil processing infrastructure that was going to be funded um, by the Chinese and then supplied by the Iranians uh, incorporated in that deal. And it strikes me that the United States being energy independent allows us to not have to be at the whims of other totalitarian, of, of totalitarian regimes. Um, whereas totalitarian regimes are really trying to, as you mentioned, dominate this new energy map. And it's, it's, really interesting how these balls are unfolding. And it's also interesting how at, on the one hand, we're kind of as a society oil, as we mentioned at the beginning, at the beginning is kind of this thing that's ostracized by the ESG movement and by the in, environmental movement when really United States oil is one of the most environmentally friendly energy industries in the world. Um, it's one of the most um, human flourishing oriented energy industries in the world. And all of these other totalitarian countries are doubling down on oil and fossil fuels and doing it in not so kosher, not so environmentally friendly ways, um, while preaching that the rest of the world should get off of oil and get off of fossil fuels, particularly that America should get off of oil and off of fossil fuels. And it's, it, it, it boggles my mind how that, how that is the conversation right now. Um, you know, one of the first executive orders that President Biden uh, put in place was to kill the uh, uh, Trans-Canada pipeline, Keystone pipeline. And, and the, the, uh, Environmentalist, that was such an environmentalist win because the oil sands in, in, in Canada, oil sands is basically an oily sand on top of the ground. They actually mine it. Then they cook it to get the oil out of it. Then they transport it by train to the U.S. Well, they could stick it into a pipeline and transport it safely underground. It's been a project being talked about for 10 years. There's already some oil pipelines from Canada. Well, they stopped the oil pipeline. Well, those of us that are in the know, like you and others, you know, that know that well, wait a minute, you're going to use oil from Canada. How is it going to get here? And when you have Nord Stream and other major infrastructure projects in the world going on, they're celebrating their energy and we're trying to get rid of that infrastructure. What we're going to end up doing is importing our energy again. And the agreement we had before is we're going to protect your country from getting bombed by providing defense to Saudi Arabia and others. You give us oil. And it's a nice arrangement. You can do whatever humanitarian things you want. You can do whatever you want but we're going to get our oil and we're not making those deals today. You know, it's very, it's a very nice place for, for us to be geopolitically. The problem is we're not investing in infrastructure. We're not investing in the future right now. We're investing in, in renewables, uh, which have their place in life, but in no way, this is a very important statistic. When you look at the energy that you consume on the planet right now, 18% of that energy goes to making electricity. That's it. So all this wind and solar conversation we're having right now is to solve 18% of an energy problem. If we got to supply 100% of our energy with non-carbon sources, we don't have a technology on the planet today. There is no CO2 uh, emissions free source of energy on the planet today. We don't know what that looks like. That's that's not invented yet. So it's a it's kind of a it's a, like I said, energy is neither created nor destroyed. We, we don't know how we're going to do that. But what we're going to do is, is make things really expensive and ignore some of the national security 
uh, problems that, that this could create and, every, and, and geopolitical problems it can create um, for the sake of the good, you know? Um, and well, and well, that, that, it's a maddening, it's a maddening uh, uh, problem. Yeah. Well, that, that statistic too, it, you said, you said only 18% of the energy consumed goes to, goes to electricity, but that's only of the energy consumed. I would be curious to know what the, what the breakdown of what fossil fuels go to in general. I mean, you're not talking about the plastics, the pharmaceuticals, the, 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 the 84%, 84% of the hundred, 84%, I said energy consumed. So what is providing the energy to consume? 84% of that is fossil fuels. Right. But uh, there's also the non-energy use cases of fossil fuels. Oh, um, which are, that, that, yeah. Yeah. That's just power. That's just energy. That has yeah. nothing to do with, like you said, yeah, the plastics, the food, the everything else that we use, that we use uh, fossil fuels for. It's a great point. Um, so there's one statistic that I saw uh, that I wanted to just read, which I, cause I thought it was fascinating. Um, it's a GDP metric, not a, you know, BTU, BTU or kilowatt hour metric. But I think it's still fascinating. So the quote is, this is from LinkedIn, from a guy named Robert Hefner on LinkedIn. I don't know who that is, but I was scrolling through my LinkedIn Now seen his stuff. Um, and he writes, Biden is expected to announce a new U.S. target ahead of his Earth Day summit to cut emissions at least 50% by 2030 compared with 2005 levels. He makes a very interesting point here. He says, in 2005, the United States emitted 58 173 metric tons of CO2, or sorry, million tons of CO2. And its GDP was $13 trillion. 50% of that is a target of 2,936 million million tons of uh, carbon dioxide. Even as the United States economy swelled to 21.43 trillion in 2019, we only emitted Ready for this? 5,965 million tons of carbon dioxide, a near zero increase in emissions after 15 years. So we, we almost, uh, we, we more than doubled our, our economic output. Uh, we almost doubled our economic output, which I know is very intimately correlated to energy consumption, as you could probably talk more, more to. Um, and then he continues and he says, the oldest reliable emissions data we have is from 1965. In 1965, the US GDP was 743 billion. The United States still emitted 3,480 million tons of carbon dioxide, right? So there's this weird game being played where we've kind of already hit these targets. Your industry is being demonized. We don't recognize where our stuff comes from and how efficiently, effectively, environmentally, socially um, friendly it is done so in America, thanks to American uh, energy independence, which is what I'm leading into right now. Um, and it's all thanks to this concept of American energy independence uh, and, and going. So can you talk a little bit about how that happened, how we actually got to a point where our GDP, our energy consumption are pretty much doubled, probably more than that. And at the same time, our, I, I don't think that that carbon dioxide emission is a, is a, is a useful metric for anything. Yeah. However, it is the metric that is used to kind of make the That's case right. that stayed constant. Two, two, two things that happened um, in, in this time frame, and we may be the only country meeting our Paris Climate Accord uh, targets, even when we weren't in the Paris Climate Accord. The, the most innovative thing that happened is that we uh, uh, learned how to frack better into shale. Uh, shale is a formation under the earth that's very dense, and it has hydrocarbons in it, and they figured out a way in the 2000s to get hydrocarbons out of shale. They figured out a way to frack it and to do it innovatively. We were building 
natural gas facilities on our coast so we can bring in natural gas from these from 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 countries uh Qatar, uh saudi arabia other countries so we can bring in natural gas whenever we figured out that we had more natural gas than we knew what to do with we turn those facilities around and we're exporting natural gas um it, it's a, a fascinating phenomenon so what happened is we found so much natural gas natural gas prices fell from six dollars in mmbtu a million British thermal units, how we measure a, a, a gallon or a or a energy unit of natural gas, went from $6 average to $2 average. That took the competitiveness of coal down, meaning we can now burn in these power plants natural gas and not use coal. So all these electric utilities started converting their coal plants to natural gas plants. Well, guess what? Coal being a long-chain hydrocarbon, it's very dirty whenever you burn it. Natural gas is not as dirty. The number of pounds of CO2 you emit per energy unit is less uh, in natural gas. So we were able to save all these emissions while getting all the energy. That's one thing. The second thing that happened is we have outsourced a lot of our manufacturing to third world countries. So I haven't seen the statistic on, on the number on this, but we sent a lot of our CO2 emissions to China Vietnam and other places, and you look at their rapid rise of CO2 emissions in the last 10 years, um, uh, it, it is, it is, that's our CO2 because we use so many of their products that they made for us. So we'll, um, uh, they use oil and natural gas from us and other places to make products and ship them to us. So we don't manufacture those things, you know, computer uh, boards, all the things that we do in Taiwan and um, Japan and China, uh, anywhere besides the U.S., where their emissions have skyrocketed, ours and what we found in wealthy countries is that your emissions climb and your energy uses climb, but then you kind of peak out. Because you think about it, what do we start doing when we get really wealthy? We live in a big high-rise. We ride our bike. We, we're, we're very dense where we live. We're not spread out uh, and we have to drive everywhere. A lot of people don't even have cars now, right, as the urbanization of, of, of America has happened over the last 100, 150 years. Uh, there's people, more people on the planet live in urban areas than they do in rural areas. So you get to use less energy because you're pooling your resources and using less energy. And so in wealthy countries, you see a big rise in energy consumption per GDP, and then it levels off. Uh, what's an interesting statistic, since you mentioned the US GDP in the last 10 years or so, if you look at the UN's IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel of Climate Change, when they're talking about climate emissions and what we're gonna be doing over the next 80 years, they say, oh, is the, is the temperature gonna rise two degrees Celsius, two and a half, four, four and a half degrees Celsius? What is gonna be the case? What they don't talk about, and it's in the data, you can go to uh, uh, the last report uh, from 2014, it shows GDP in the world tripling between now and 2100. You can't triple GDP without energy. You can't make energy without CO2 emissions. So it is a weird conundrum that we're in. And, and Bill Gates' new book that he just put out, uh, I read it recently on my trip to the Congo. Um, it's a good book. Uh, he, he does a good job of simplifying it and putting it into his terms. I think he does a good job. I think he is a little Pollyanna on national security, on China, on other stuff. He's definitely pro-nuclear. He hates batteries, uh, thinks it's a terrible investment. 
um, that we're putting time and resources in. And it, it's, it, 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 it frames it. And people can be fans of Bill Gates or not. What you can't argue with is his thinking and the way he dives into things. It, it's pretty well thought out, I thought. Um, uh, but it, it, he puts it into terms that you can get your head around uh, that we're going to be tripling GDP, uh, and, but, but yet we're going to be reducing emissions by 50% in the U.S.? Like, show me the physics. Show me how that works, you know? It goes back to that first law of thermodynamics and, you know, energy cannot be created or destroyed and you have to get the stuff from somewhere. And if you're and, tripling and the stuff- Human prosperity is tied to yeah. energy. That's right. Human prosperity is tied to energy. If you're going to have increased human prosperity, you know, right now in 2015, there was 46% of the planet lived on less than $5.50 a day. 46% of the planet. Poverty in the U.S. right now is about $12,700 per year. If you, Max, were to make less than $12,700, you're, you're, you're poor uh, in the eyes of the government. Uh, that's $35 a day. So the 46% of the planet lives on less than $5.50 a day. So if we're going to get those people to $35 a day, how is that going to happen? Are we just going to subject them to, to poverty for the rest of their lives? And well, we could just go them? print $20 trillion in two months and <laughs> helicopter. Right. <laughs> exactly right. yeah. Joking. We, we um, give them $20 trillion to go build pipelines. <laughs> you know? <yeah. laughs> I'm definitely joking on that one. Let's not print $20 trillion. Uh, hopefully not, in my opinion. Um, so to round out the American energy independence conversation, I haven't had a chance to read Bill Gates' book yet. Um, what what change that allowed for um, that innovative American Texan spirit to to unleash itself on the energy industry and on this new new paradigm of of natural gas that was unlocked within the past decade? Um, and how can we continue to allow that that energy paradigm to prosper to allow us to access more cleaner, um, more abundant, more human flourishing? forms of energy it's interesting the thing the thing that we enjoy in the u.s is mineral ownership if you buy a piece of property you buy the surface of the land and then you also get to own the minerals underneath if you so choose not everybody owns the minerals under their land but if you so choose then you get to monetize those minerals uh just because they're there if there's oil natural gas coal uranium water salt whatever you want to go dig after you get to dig those things up and monetize them and it was that that led to innovation where you had Mitchell Energy out there learning how to frack into areas that were previously thought of not to have oil and gas. That this, you know, those uh, George Mitchell specifically, uh, the book, The Frackers, good book uh, to go look at how he just was determined and almost went broke doing it, determined to figure out a way to frack those areas to get more uh, uh, oil and natural gas out of the ground. And it's why did he want to do it? Because he wanted you know the money out of it. Plus, it's innovative. It's fun to think about. You know, uh, it's that monetization. What I've found is in the U.S. in contract law, you know, because we're able to contractually get those and sell them, and and we have private property ownership. All those things, all that freedom that we get to have, uh, unlocks human innovation. If you were to go to Mexico right across the river, these formations for oil and gas don't stop at the river. Uh, they go across the river. That's a national oil company. They, they're, they're not very innovative. We make more oil and gas in one field in Texas than they do in the entire country. 
we make more oil and gas in Texas than Mexico and Canada combined. Um, you know, and it's that freedom that we're able to do it, you know, and, and, and if you have freedom, you have innovation. Uh, I think faster innovation than if you don't have freedom. And that leads to a much harder conversation. You know, well, China's innovative and they, they don't have freedom. That's a whole different conversation that we can get into later. But but in, in general, what the reason why we're enjoying it in Texas, in the U.S., is because we can monetize our minerals and we look for ways to do that. And every time we think we're at peak oil, meaning we're going to run out, we have no more oil, we figure out a way to find more resource. It's a very fascinating um, a phenomenon that's gone on that whenever oil prices go up, it drives more innovation. We find more supply and then oil prices go down. And so uh, we're a little crazy in the oil and gas business because we're constantly finding a way to keep, keep our product cheap. We make a lot more money if we let the government restrict us and have our have our product be worth a lot more money. Why are oil prices going up right now? Right now is because during the pandemic, we stopped spending money. Uh, in the U.S., we had 800 rigs operating in the U.S. When the pandemic hit, we went to 200 rigs in the U.S. Every rig produces a well about every 10 to 14 days. Was that and was so, that a result of the was that a result of the pandemic or of the OPEC crisis that happened or of the Russia oh, craziness? Okay, can you oh, can you break that down a little bit just so I'm I'm yeah, I'm, what, I'm not what, what super clear on how it happened. What happened was last February and uh, March timeframe, Russia and Saudi Arabia uh, did not get along. Supposedly, there's conspiracy theories that say they were getting along and conspired to say we're gonna uh, we're gonna flood the market. You know, uh, last year we were at sixty dollars oil going to seventy dollars. They couldn't agree on what production they were going to have. They said, "Fine, we're gonna we're gonna flood the market and uh, with, with product with with oil." Uh, that drove oil prices down. Then you had a pandemic hit in the middle of this emerging, a middle of this, this not war, that's too strong a word, but but this disagreement between Saudi Arabia and Russia, two major oil powers, uh, uh, deciding that they're going to flood the world market with oil. Uh, some people think it was to put the U.S. producers out of business. They need to get that, that oil price down to $25, $30, which is not economic to drill in the U.S. They want to get that oil price down. So in the middle of that, the pandemic was cranking up in March. People stopped driving. They stopped flying. Uh, they stopped moving around. We didn't know what was going on. So they had all this capacity uh, for big production. Because remember, every day they have to drill. Every day you have to use a pipeline. You have to drive a truck. You have to get this energy out of the ground and to consumers every single day. And any disruption in the supply chain it disrupts that. So when toilet paper was disrupted uh, last year because the supply chain was disrupted, that truck wasn't driving and people hoarded it. And so it disrupted the supply chain. Same with oil and gas. So we stopped drilling. We used our, and oil went to negative prices that day in, in late March, early April. Uh, so so uh, um, supply or demand went down, supply matched it. And then at the beginning of this year, we're starting to see demand increase. And we're not going to be able to ramp up our supply as fast because a lot of companies went out of business. A lot of money has left the business uh, because of that. Saudi Arabia and Russia says we were just kidding. You know, we're we're we'll you know uh, we're we're, we're going to cut back. They they cut back during the pandemic also, and the world supply and demand has balanced, and we're back up to sixty three dollars now. 
And, uh, and I think the world stays a happy place if we just kind of hang around this $60, $70, you know, it's when it peaks up to a hundred uh, that people start drilling and drives the supply down. Then you hit 20 and you got this constant up and down because it's a world commodity. And there's many, many, many world commodities uh, that, that, that have price fluctuations, whether it be soybeans, cattle, beef prices, chicken prices, just name a commodity. It's all subject to supply and demand disruption. What does that mean that oil went negative? So what why did it go was, negative? What happened was uh, that it, w- the end of the month in March was happening last year. And uh, uh, what traders do is buy oil and hold and at a price and then hold it towards the end of the month and then try to sell it. And they usually make a little money, little margins are being made. But when the pandemic was happening, people owned contracts for oil, but they didn't own storage and they didn't own pipes. They didn't have anybody to buy it. Demand had gone away but they own the oil and they don't know what to do with it. And so what they had to do was I'll pay you to take the oil. And so there wasn't a whole lot traded then, but, but there was a trade happened at minus $38 a barrel, meaning somebody that owned oil and, and paid 50 or $60 a barrel for it. They had to settle their contract and they had nowhere to put their oil, uh, no, no storage contracted. So they actually had to pay somebody to take it off their hands. I think it's an interesting, yeah, I think it's an interesting where stuff comes from train of thought, because we don't think about, okay, we bought this good that we're not going to use. We had planned, I'm talking now to the industrialist or the factory owner, whoever it is, we had planned to use it in our production, but now we don't need it. And now if we just burn it or throw it out, the government's going to come after us and charge us X number of dollars. And I'm assuming that's like the calculus that these firms made when they decided to give oil away for, for negative money. Um, It's just an interesting where stuff comes from lesson and example of, hey, okay, there is such thing as too much of a good thing um, or having too much um, raw materials. I mean, now we're seeing the opposite of that where like car companies can't get plastics or semiconductors, but just thinking, thinking through that as a, as a case study and, and it's important to think through where your stuff comes from, where your stuff goes and that whole stuff chain value chain as more professional non-millennial people might say, um, Cool. I have two more questions for you. Um, if we have the time, I thought probably about like five or 10 more minutes. Um, the first one, you just got back from a trip to the Congo, which you were telling me about a little bit offline, which sounded awesome. Uh, and I'm wondering what lessons, takeaways, et cetera, you have about the energy paradigm and the, the you mentioned a little bit about, about poverty in the United States versus true poverty in a place like Africa, where they're living on dollars a day because they, they're, they're, they're um, lighting poop on fire to to be able to cook their dinner. Can you talk about what lessons and takeaways, things you saw, experienced being in Africa for an extended period of time, working in the energy industry, et cetera? Yeah, fascinating trip. So I'm a, I'm a hunter and uh, really have gotten, gotten into wildlife conservation and, and figuring out how to save more animals. Uh, and so uh, it seems counterintuitive that, well, you get to go hunt them, you know, and you're going to kill them. Yeah, but, but we, we eat them and, and we're supplying jobs to people because we want more animals on the planet. We don't want less animals on the planet. It goes back to your point, the oil and gas people are generally landowners and stewards of wildlife and the land and the environment. And so uh, Scott Tinker's work at the University of Texas, he's probably the greatest energy poverty expert on the planet. Uh, and I, I've read his work and watched his work and uh, uh, men, uh, mentored a, a contest that he had last year. Uh, on a, a team out of out of Kenya, uh, and so so when I when I go to a place like the Congo, 
you fly into Douala, Cameroon, you immediately notice that things are a little darker and dingier. Uh, you, you notice that uh, things aren't as clean. Um, uh, I take a, a plane out to uh, the dense forest and uh, you notice that the huts that people are in are made out of organic material, not refined material. You notice that they're sleeping on dirt floors and they have a fire in the middle of their hut and smoke is just pouring out of their little hut in the mornings uh, because they're cooking their food, uh, uh, making their uh, making their meal uh, and their kids. And you remember the statistics I, I've been reading, you know, uh, there's 2 million children die a year of smoke inhalation uh, because they're living in huts like that. Everybody's a little bit of cough. It's probably the way our ancestors were um, uh, when, when they were trying to keep themselves warm. That's the first thing I noticed when I was there is, is the unhealthiness generally of their cooking situations and their heating situations uh, in their home. Um, uh, very uh, simple lives. Their, their uh, uh, income there is usually between a, a dollar to $5 a day in the area uh, that I was in. And they're nomadic people. I was hunting around the Baca Pygmies. The Baca Pygmy tribe is estimated to be about 15,000 on the planet today. I'm a very tall person. They're, they're, they're very small people because the forest, obviously being that heavy canopy, it makes everything small. The animals are more dwarf. Uh, they're smaller animals. Uh, uh, but with their nomadic people, because they use the resources that are available to them, the forest around them. And once they consume the resources in that area, they just move to the next area. Then they consume those resources. Then they move to the next area. And they've moved around the jungle for hundreds, if not thousands of years, uh, doing exactly that. Uh, it was very fascinating for me to notice that technology has reached them. Outside their hut with smoke billowing out, they'll have a little solar panel on top of their uh, hut so they could plug their cell phone in. They actually had cell phones in these huts. Um, and that's how I remember a statistic where there's more cell phones on the planet than there are people. That even people like that, that live on that small of a, a, of a amount a day, have a cell phone. Uh, not every kid, of course. They don't even have school where I was. They, they had no formal schooling of any kind. Um, uh, so that was pretty fascinating. The area I was in had a Chinese logging operation going in or going on. So getting to witness what a logging operation looks like in the Congo uh, was pretty fascinating. Um, um, and also, you know, the, 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 the overall general age of them where we're, we're, we have life expectancy today, say into our 80s, their life expectancy, it's still better than we were in 1900 but it's probably not till about 55 to, to 60 years old there, you know? So all, all very interesting things on the work that I've been doing on energy and civilization and human progress and to see kind of where we were maybe a couple hundred years ago is where they're living today. And that's just shocking to me in 2021. What would it take? So the, the Chinese have a, their One Belt, One Road initiative, which lets them have logging operations in the Congo. Um, I'm assuming that that financing will come back to bite somebody in the ass at some point uh, in Africa. Um, when I say that, I mean, you know, they give predatory loans so these operations can take place and then they seize the assets when the, when the loan payments are not able to be made. What would it take as someone who is in the, the, the international energy business, you lay pipelines across borders, for the United States or more broadly, the United States and her allies um, to embark on a similar endeavor 
with companies like Howard Energy Partners. So does Howard Energy Partners have any plans? Could you see a future where you go lay pipelines in the Congo um, and start you know, bringing the American version of human flourishing through energy to some of these other countries? We, we, we love to. The issue that we have operating in foreign, in foreign soils like that, in Mexico, it's fine because Mexico is used to doing business with Americans. We have a thing called the Foreign Corrupt Policies Act, FCPA, where it's very difficult to do business with governments that are known for corruption. Unfortunately, Cameroon is one that's known sort of yeah. for that. Uh, it'd be very difficult for us to own assets in a country like that. What would be more logical is we could provide the technology where we could provide the engineering. We could maybe provide the product to the border, uh, meaning like maybe a propane canister full of propane uh, on a shipload of propane canisters or something along those lines. Uh, but it's it's hard to imagine politically uh, that we can, we've looked at projects in different countries in South America, primarily, not too much Africa. Uh, China does not have the same rules that we have, right? Yeah. On the Built and Road Initiative. They can go in and cut these kind of deals with countries that, that Americans are not allowed to go uh, do. Um, they'll come after us personally uh, and, and, and professionally uh, to, to do that. We, you know, So it's very difficult to operate. Uh, it's nice to think about though, because you can imagine uh, when I've been to Mozambique or I've been to Botswana or I've been to different places, about getting them energy. And what's interesting right now going on in Mozambique, I don't know if you noticed the Pimba situation where Total, their $38 billion uh, uh, operation is shut down right now. Could you, could you give a little more context for this? Yeah, so in, in Northeast uh, Mozambique, the US government calls it ISIS. I don't know if it's ISIS. There's definitely a terrorist uh, 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 action going on. And there's a large oil and gas operation off the coast of Mozambique, one of the largest in the world. Total is an owner of it, and so is Anadarko, which is a U.S.-based company. Uh, there's, they have some stuff out there. Uh, the, the terrorists have basically taken over the platforms and have shut down the port uh, there in Mozambique. It's, it's quite a, a crisis going on. So you have oil and gas is hard to operate. It's innovative. But then you have these people that don't want that innovation going on or they want to keep it for themselves, or like Nigeria or others that are just hard places to operate, very corrupt. And so while Mozambique was on the right track, they were they were attracting investment. They were attracting foreign uh, uh, good countries to come in and invest. And here with this terrorist act, Mozambique's going to be set back 10, 15 years easily uh, uh, for that. You know, so it's it's a fascinating uh, thing. Look what's going on in Mexico right now is another one where the last president in 2012 ran on energy reform. And for six years, he was there and was working to attract foreign investment into their energy uh, world. Um, the new president came in, ran on an anti-deregulation uh, uh, platform, and is putting Pemex back together and doesn't want foreign investment. And so, you, you know, it's very hard to put these 20, 30, 50-year projects in and spend hundreds of millions of dollars on infrastructure in a place where they can be taken away with a stroke of a constitutional pen. It's very difficult for us to get our head around that. And so it's it's not about technology. It's not about uh, innovation. We have all the technology and innovation to get more people energy. It's you got to have the political will in those countries to do it. Fascinating. I saved the best question for last, the most exciting, in my opinion, what I think is the most exciting question. Um, so thinking, say, 50 years into the future, what is the future of energy when you know, when global when global energy consumption is ten times what it is today, 
what is the quote unquote, you know, energy stack look like? Um, we, we will hopefully have much more nuclear. Uh, I think nuclear is going to be uh, a, a much, much, much larger uh, power source. We're going to have much more wind turbines, much more solar put in, although that's going to be, uh, I think, from an energy consumption stack, that's going to be a pretty low one. Uh, you're still going to be using massive amounts of natural gas. You're still going to be using massive amounts of coal and massive amounts of oil. Uh, just to give you a small statistic, I think Mark Mills at the Manhattan Institute is one of the best at calculating this stuff at that think tank. Uh, 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 that he, what, what, what some of his work would say is that, let's say in 2019, you had 100 million barrels of oil being produced on the planet in 2019. You have about 4 uh, 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 billion cars on the road today. I forgot how many electric vehicles are on the road today, but not many. Uh, there's like 2% electric vehicles. Let's just say by 2040, uh, 2050, that you put 700 million electric vehicles on the planet. 700 million. That's if you could get 700 million built. Let's just assume 700 million in, in 20 years. Your oil consumption, based on GDP growth, based on population growth, based on UNIPCC models, you're still going to be at 100 million barrels of oil consumption in 2040. So that's not 50 years in the future to your question. That's just a 2040 statistic that, that says if everything goes right, we're going to be using more. We're going to have efficiency. There's going to be more efficiency on the planet. We're, we're going to be more connected as a planet. You'll be able to get, hopefully we get some high-speed transportation put in. Hopefully put some more public transportation in. We get better at this stuff. Autonomous driving hopefully gets in. Um, you know, things where vehicle ownership gets much less. There's a lot of things hopefully that happen. But if all that happens, you're still using a lot of energy. And, and that's why I don't know that people fully appreciate yet when you're still bringing billions of people up above our poverty lines on the planet in China and in India and Africa. Um, uh, there's many more people that live there than live here. And so, and they're, they're fighting to get to where we are on the prosperity line. And so, um, you know, I, so I, I think, you know, like I said, it's nuclear, oil and gas, a lot more, but, but you need all of it. There's no one that should be demonized right now, in my opinion, uh, because we've learned how to protect ourselves from the environment. We're continuing to get better at protecting ourselves from the environment. I think claiming climate catastrophe is such a dangerous uh, thing. And we're valuing um, uh, human life based on how much carbon footprint we have versus what good we're doing for the, for the world. Um, so it, that, that's a whole different conversation we didn't really get into today, but all this is kind of leading up to that conversation, right? Is that to continue to promote human flourishing and to pro promote the good life we do, we have to use energy. Uh, energy produces CO2. There's no CO2 free energy out there. So if we're going to continue to produce the life that we have, we got to continue to produce the energy that we have. And it, it's a thermodynamic conundrum that we're in. Yeah. And we have to think about where our stuff comes from until we have some new physics that lets us just Star Trek, Star Trek replicate whatever we, we want. Physics. That's a great, that's a great point. We need yeah. new physics. Um, are there, what are some of the, you know, energy physics breakthroughs that you see, you know, potentially happening that change the paradigm of where our energy comes from? If you, well, if you're familiar with them. Yeah. What's crazy right now is, is we're not innovating at all in the nuclear uh, space. There's so much we could be doing when the entire waste 
in your lifetime, all the energy, all the jet planes that you'll take, all the car travel you would do, the, the nuclear waste that you would produce in your lifetime would fit in a Coke can. You know, Michael Schellenberger's book, Apocalypse Never, this past year was a great example of an environmentalist writing a great book and using nuclear as some of his platform. Uh, it is such a good book uh, to kind of put this uh, uh, into perspective that there's so many forms of nuclear innovation that we could be doing right now with thorium uh, and other stuff. And I'm not super uh, read up on that, uh, but but I do know how innovation uh, I appreciate how innovation works. It takes doing these things over a course of many, many years. As we were moving in a, as a country from wood to coal, from coal to oil, from oil to natural gas, constantly denser forms of energy to uranium, we were on the right track to, to use denser forms of energy to have less impact on the environment. We were on track. When nuclear got derailed with Chernobyl, uh, 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 Three Mile Island, uh, Fukushima, when, when politically nuclear scares, scares the hell out of people, we stopped innovating. So Chernobyl would be like complaining about a biplane crashing, right? It, it'd be like complaining. That's the kind of technology they were using. The technologies I mean, we have. I, I would so say it goes back to the Wright brothers. It was like arguing that the Wright brothers uh, glider crashed. <laughs> so bad. The things that we have today, we have such good technology, right? Uh, that we're just not innovating on it. And so if we were free to innovate, imagine where we'd be if we weren't restricting oil and gas, if we weren't restricting energy from people in third world countries. The World Bank right now is restricting financing of hydro dams, you know, uh, along um, uh, the river in, in the Congo, in the DRC, the, the country right next door to where I was, you know, they're restricting financing to hydro dams and stuff. Like, why are they doing that? You know, like, because it would disrupt the environment, but you're killing people, you know, like, wh why not give those people the energy they need to live? That's the whole purpose of the World Bank. Uh, but they said, nope, you know, if it's not environmentally friendly, we're not going to, we're not going to give them the money and financing for it. That, I just think that's a tragedy in what we're doing to, 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 to people by restricting access to energy. Well, Mike, thank you so much for breaking down where our energy comes from, where our energy is going, how we get our energy, and your role in the ever-important um, American energy independence ecosystem. Um, thank you so much. Before we head off, do you have any calls to action for the audience? Where can people find you, connect with you, learn more about your work? Yeah, so my uh, email, I'm, I'm not too much on social media uh, as a CEO with big investors, you know. But mhoward at howardep.com. Feel free to uh, reach out anytime. That's how I connected with, with you, Max. So I appreciate connecting with you. Uh, and the thing I would, I would you know, educate yourself on is ask yourself where your stuff comes from. If you turn on the light switch, it's interesting to know in your neighborhood, where does your electric, electricity come from? And you're driving your car, where does your gasoline come from? And I think the truth is out there in some very good resources. We mentioned some of them on this uh on this podcast, but you know, the, the, the more you, you look for the truth in this and take the emotion out, take the uh, objectivity out and understand there's trade-offs to everything that we do. Uh, I think it, it's a pretty enlightening and satisfying place to be that we're going to start working on the problems in a real way, not in an emotional and political way. So that's my hope uh, for everyone is that we can start having conversations that are a little more scientific, a little more non-emotional because we're all in it. We've got one atmosphere, one planet, one species, 
you know, and, and we, we, you know, I think there's, there's a, there's a common solution that we can get to uh, for all these problems we mentioned today. Mike Howard, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, if you happen to be a large government Fortune 500 company who needs to access uh, different petrochemical products and you want to connect with Howard Energy Partners, I will plug your website, howardenergypartners.com. Um, Mike, thank you again. Really appreciate it. And we will catch you on the other side. Thank you, Matt. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Next Frontier Podcast. If you like this content, please head over to nextfrontier.org forward slash subscribe. It's nextfrontier.org forward slash subscribe. We have out of this world content coming your way over the next few months. Hope that you enjoy and stay tuned.